Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This podcast contains adult themes and graphic descriptions of violence. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The last spot where Tamara Green took a breath is on a quiet street in the northwest part of Detroit. Rows of brick houses face a park. So we're physically at Outer Drive and uh, Rose Line. Okay, so this is a yeah. So nice I can talk a little bit about this neighborhood. neighborhood. Tell me about this yeah. neighborhood because this so is not what I expected. We're in Northwest Detroit, um, uh, Rose Line at West Outer Drive. Um, it has traditionally been uh, a strong middle class uh, neighborhood. You don't see um, the years of neglect. Uh, and financial challenges that some neighborhoods in the city faced and still face, uh, you don't necessarily see that here uh, on, on Rose Line. Um, uh, you, you see bungalows, um, you know, 1,500 square foot, 2,000 square foot bungalows, uh, colonials, nice lawns, to be sure. As I pointed out, African Americans begin to move into this general neighborhood. Um, probably as late as the late 50s, early as, probably as early as the late 50s in, in the 1960s, uh, the Winans family, the great gospel music group, um, they grew up in this general area and uh, attended Mumford High School. Uh, even Big Sean, um, uh, the, the um, R&B and, and hip-hop artist uh, uh, of today, um, grew up uh, in this general uh, uh, neighborhood. And so this is where in 2003, uh, Tamara Green, uh, Strawberry, uh, was murdered uh, in a parked car in this general area. I'm Christy Strasser, and this is Who Killed Strawberry? Episode 6, The World's Biggest Small Town. If a director needed B-roll of a middle-class suburb... Rose Lawn and West Outer Drive in Detroit would fit the bill. Outside a vanilla-colored brick house facing the park, that's where Tamara sat in the car with her boyfriend, Eric Mitchell. It was 3.40 a.m. They were talking after she got off work at a nearby strip club. He was a regular visitor at the club and a convicted drug dealer. Everyone called him Big E. That nickname wasn't ironic. He was a large man tipped the scales at close to 250 pounds. Several people told me Tamara really loved him, saw a future together. 20 years later, WWJ videographer Terrence Vales and I sat in the same spot with Detroit historian Ken Coleman, and I marveled at how ordinary it all looked. There's obvious pride of ownership, it's the kind of place where you pitch your grandma cooking up a big Sunday meal. Kids playing tag in the yard. I mean, sitting in this area right now, it strikes me that that would have been a story in itself to me. Am I wrong about mm-hmm. that? Just that because this, this doesn't look like the kind of place where you get shot in the head. Yeah. Dropping somebody off. Yeah. I would gather to agree in large part. I, I will say, though, that crime... Uh, in the city of Detroit, unfortunately, and I'm a lifelong resident um, who still lives in the city, um, anything can happen in any neighborhood, um, uh, certainly in my hometown uh, in Detroit, uh, and even uh, uh, even murder. To be sure, 
um, this is a is a strong um, strong community. One of Detroit Public Schools is leading um, middle schools, academic uh, academic uh, school of academic achievement, Bates Academy is just about a half mile away from here, and so people take pride. Uh, uh, in this section of Northwest Detroit, and I imagine that there they were, um, they were probably shocked to hear uh, about a murder um, that occurred uh, on their street yeah. um, at that time in 2003. Police lights flashing at 3:30 in the morning. Yep. The yep. reason that I'm mm -hmm. so I think that her car came to rest right here. Yeah. So I'm guessing, this I know it was like, 19. I know it's 19,000 something. The 19,000. Yeah. Block. This, this is that's the, only, the block that we're on. This is the only curb I see. So. Oh, I'm, you're saying you so you, you literally think it was probably. I literally right think there. it was right here. Okay. Because yeah. if it was 1900, it would have been right here, and well, then. Well, I can I can tell you, for people at uh, three o'clock in the morning to see what was probably. Uh, flashing, um, uh, flashing police um, squad cars um, in a car that would may have hit a curb um, would have been uh, unsettling and shocking to be sure. Okay, so the way the police report goes, she was dropping off her boyfriend. So you could only be on this side of the street, which is interesting because mm -hmm. I picture cars on both sides. But you'd have to be only on this side. Right. And the car came up. It was a white, like a van or an SUV. It came up from the side street, so mm. it would have to probably have been this side street. Yeah, yeah. This. Um, I went back to look as as we were getting ready to, as I was prepping for this. I went back and and read some free press stories from from the time. Yeah. It was definitely this somewhere between Outer Drive and, and as where it sort of uh, dead ends here. It, it was definitely these two blocks, and, and you're probably I think you're probably right. Yeah, and what, somehow, like as the car came up. The, her boyfriend at mm -hmm. the time, Eric Mitchell, mm -hmm. saw like knew something when he saw that vehicle. He knew something something, was something up. bad was about to happen. Yeah. So he dove into the wheel well of the car, mm. and she sort of just turned to look, didn't know what was going on, obviously, and she was shot in the face wow. or in the side of the you know side of the neck because she was on this side, wow. and the boyfriend was shot. I think he got hit in the leg. He got he had not, you know non life threatening injuries, right. but she was hit because she was looking she was like she right turned, here she, kinda, yeah. she turned she was hit in the side of the neck and then the car of its own volition just you know ran onto the curb yeah. and that's where it stopped after months of hunting police reports suspects witnesses cops and attorneys chasing theories conspiracy and otherwise we needed ken coleman Ken has spent a lifetime telling the stories of Detroiters. Plus, he's just a great guy to spend the day with. He has a loose, easy manner, a great laugh, the good looks of your favorite um, college professor. This community, um, general communities, homes were built uh, in the 30s and 40s as Detroit expanded. Um, you know, at one time, the city had 1.8 million residents. Um, uh, in 1950, it had 1.8 million residents. You know, the city is only about a third of that size now. Uh, but this was, this was a very um, strong middle-class community. Ken is the premier historian of Detroit. He runs Detroit Black History Tours, which highlight black excellence in one of the first cities where black communities thrived. The stories of Detroit are Ken's passion the people, the places. Still, he is not wearing rose-colored glasses. Ken sees the city in all of its rough edges. I grew up about three miles from here. Attended grade school and high school in the 70s and 80s. You know, the influx of drugs, cocaine, you know, crack cocaine, uh, selling of marijuana, all that becomes very prevalent. Um, you know, at, at, at the time, and uh, even even folks like me, um, Northwest Side residents um, who grew up in you know a fairly middle class or certainly working class uh, neighborhood, um, we weren't immune from hearing about um, and sometimes even witnessing um, horrific murders uh, like Green Suffer. I mean, it um, you know again two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, in a strong middle-class neighborhood, it would definitely be unsettling, um, but not not something that uh, 
uh, at least many city residents would be surprised by. Ken is a public TV host, civil rights reporter, and an author. And because Detroit is a small town trapped in the body of a big city, he knows Kwame Kilpatrick. So you'll just whip around here, uh, go and uh, make a left at, uh, at the stop sign here. So in addition to the journalism work, for the last probably dozen years, really have um, honed in on uh, writing about um, African-American life in Detroit. Um, my wife and Kwame and Kwame's sister Ayana, they were all classmates at uh, at Cass Technical oh, High School. Oh, I didn't know well, that. Well, actually, Kimmy, Kimmy, Kimmy's two years older than Kwame. Uh, Kimmy's um, sister, my sister-in-law, Raina, um, Raina and Ayana and, and Kwame were all classmates. Well, not, not classmates, because Ayana's one year younger. But, um, so I've known um, the, Kil the Kilpatricks at least half of my adult life. Wow. Um, my wife worked for Carolyn Kilpatrick. She was, um, uh, Kim was Carolyn's um, uh, press secretary okay. uh, in the late 90s, early, early 2000s. And so Kwame's prominence as a state lawmaker and his mayoralty um, was right about the time uh, Kim and I were married. Kwame was at our wedding. Uh, really? And Carolyn was part of the program, part of the officiating program in the wedding. Um, Did it surprise either one of you mm -hmm. that he became, that he rose to prominence so quickly? Uh, I think that was a shocker to everybody. What I'm told, I did not know him during his high school years. What I'm told, he always had sort of a charismatic personality. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not told, I mean, I don't think that many people are surprised that he would have gone into public service. I mean, his, his mom and dad, after all, um, sort of created that as the family business, if you will. Um, so I'm not, you know, I don't think it's surprising to anyone that he would become a, a you know, a state house member. Um, but becoming mayor, particularly as young as he did, I think that was uh, pretty impressive to, to, to a lot of people. Ken agreed to take us on a tour of Detroit, highlighting the 1970s to the early aughts. That's the time when Kwame Kilpatrick and Tamara Green both called the city home. Judge Damon Keith lived uh, about a mile from here. Marvin Gaye lived in this neighborhood uh, in the 1970s. Uh, very strong, uh, very strong community to be sure. Uh, if you want to uh, head toward All Stars, why don't we make a right turn here on Wyoming? I will go up to eight miles. And that, so that's another really interesting part of this whole story to me is the the club scene in yep, Detroit yep, in the right. early 2000s. So I, am I wrong in thinking that that was probably the height of like the strip club, nightclub? Yeah, I mean, cer certainly as somebody who, I'm 54 now, so, you know, I became 21 years old in, what, 1988. I mean, I, certainly the 1990s, it seems to me, would have been sort of really sort of the height of um, uh, strip clubs, uh, male entertainment <laughs> uh, uh, institutions. Uh, I, I certainly, like everybody else, know people who frequented uh, frequented them. Um, you know, the 1990s would have been a great decade for it. Even you know, the Green Murder happens in uh, 2003, and so I imagine that it, uh, you know, that that certainly would have been. You know, within that that sort of period, um, they're still stigma, pretty popular now. But was there a stigma, would you say, of mm. you know, with like working in the club or being somebody who frequented the club? Or was you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I went to college. You know, I went to Wayne State with with young ladies who danced yeah. to earn money to pay pay college tuition and to pay and to pay bills. I think it would certainly be a stigma in some certain circles. Um, but I think I've talked to many women. Um, over the years that um, that worked in, in, in clubs like All Stars and um, you know, they looked at it as a way to earn a living uh, an honest way to earn a living um, you know and, and it's, it le it's legal it wasn't something that they hid it wasn't like right. it was just I have covered um, a set of city council meetings probably right about maybe it was right after 2003 but 
maybe right about that time, not not associated with the Green Murder, but um, uh, at, they are organized. Uh, uh, men and women who manage and work in these clubs, uh, they've been organized at times and have lobbied city council um, for, you know, uh, for on zoning issues, uh, license issues, um, just like beer and wine establishments and, 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 and bars, um, bars and clubs, uh, at least in, at least in Detroit, uh, my hometown, uh, they're, they they are uh, organized and are you know conscientious about their work. They don't necessarily look at their work as a negative thing, um, and uh, they operate just like the party store owner yeah. or um, you know the community association. Did you know Keith Stallworth? Because that's another yes. like he owns some of these. He Keith, owns Keith owned Tigers. Uh, Tigers, yeah, Keith. But uh, so my. Uh, Keith was a state rep, uh, was a Wayne County Commissioner and state rep um, very early in my journalism career. So I covered him as a, uh, as a state lawmaker and to some extent as a Wayne County Commissioner. But uh, he was definitely an adult entertainment establishment owner uh, at, at one point, no doubt about it. And he was close with Kwame. Wasn't he Kwame's mentor? Uh, I think that Kwame would probably refer to Keith Stallworth as a mentor. It's been a few years since I've been over, over wow. here, but yeah, you can still see it, so you might want to get out. And... Yeah, let's check this place out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the uh, Stallworths and the Kilpatricks are, are, are political families that go uh, a couple of generations deep, and so uh, the gentlemen certainly knew each other and spent some time working together uh, in Lansing in the late 1990s. Well, that's another argument, too, that there wasn't a stigma associated with dancing in clubs. That, I mean, Michigan, yeah. Detroit elected somebody who owned clubs. Absolutely. Here we stop to check out the abandoned husk of the last strip club where tomorrow worked. A faded sign out front, you can just barely see it. It says All Stars. The parking lot is cracked but the fake castle facade is still intact. You can tell it used to be a club, a really big one. There's a valet area out front. A black wrought iron fence closes off the entire property. There are a couple of really big for sale signs scattered all around the perimeter. All Stars is on a main drag, but it's surrounded by a neighborhood. It's less than a couple of miles from the street where Tomorrow was killed. But this one, it shows more signs of wear. But yeah, this is, um, but it, you know, again, this is a, the, the Roselawn neighborhood a little bit stronger economically than here, but um, this is clearly still a, you know, strong working class still, uh, community. Yeah, and, you know, at two or three o'clock in the morning, I've done a lot of stories where these neighbors would be upset <laughs> about the noise and, the, you know, oh. the traffic. When did this close, do you remember? Uh, 2011, I believe. Okay, so it's been closed for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, you know, they got shut down a couple different times. There was a police report that uh, suggested that they had a 14-year-old uh, girl working yeah. as a dancer. So they were cited... Uh, for violations uh, often. There used to be, and I don't think there's many now, there are probably more uh, recreational marijuana dispensaries uh, than, than, uh, than topless clubs. But at one time, certainly when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, most of, a lot of those establishments were along um, West and East 8 Mile Road. But yeah, so she obviously, I mean, this was sort of tomorrow's stomping grounds because mm -hmm. the place where she was killed was just, mm -hmm. you know, essentially kind of around the corner. The Detroit where Tamara and Kwame both grew up, it's divided. East side, west side. She's from the east side, he's from the west. As Detroiters, we we jokingly and mockingly um, describe um, with great pride the side of town that you grew up on. Mm -hmm. If you were a West Sider, you said it with pride. 
and look to the east side um, with shame <laughs> and vice versa. East siders would do the same with the west side. But 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 the reality is um, Detroit, the 70s and 80s had neighborhoods that were middle class and thriving um, on both sides of town. And it had neighborhoods that were that were uh, supremely challenged economically mm-hmm. uh, on 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 both the uh, east side and west side. So it would depend on particularly where she grew up on the east side, um, because there are some real strong neighborhoods there, and there's some very challenged ones, and and, and the same uh, uh, and the same on the west side. But um, you know, again, Detroit is 139 square miles, and I, when I do history presentations. Um, for groups, I, I I remind some and share with others. This city is so big in terms of its geography, 139 square miles, that you could literally place the city of Boston, the borough of Brooklyn, um, and the city of San Francisco inside of Detroit, and still have a lot of room left over. Uh, but it still it's feels just like how a, big the city. But is. it still feels like a small town, especially in the leadership. Small town and feel. Small town and feel, in the sense that everybody sort of knows everybody. Especially people in power. Like, everybody knows somebody who knows... Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Because that's the way sort of politics has worked in our town. And that's what what happened in the Kilpatrick experience. Kwame becomes a second-generation elected official um, um, uh, serving, uh, you know, serving the same, the same area uh, in the state house that his mother did. I mean, he he was the predecessor to his mother. It's a little bit like the city's version of like the Kennedys in Boston. Yep. And yep. the um, Bushes. Indeed. And, yeah. Indeed. And it follows. I mean, white folks too. I mean, the, you know, Debbie Dingell is now. Yep. <laughs> I mean, the Dingles have held like a seat in Congress for a hundred years now. Yep. <laughs> you know, with uh, with with her late husband John and his dad. You can't talk about Detroit history without the summer of 1967. Five days of civil unrest that changed the city forever. Every nightly newscast in America had footage as Detroit went up in flames. It was the largest civil disturbance of 20th century America. It happened before either Kwame Kilpatrick or Tamara Green were born but it cast a shadow on the neighborhoods where they lived. And it still does. This is the discount jewelry store, the building burned with the cars parked in front of it. The crowds at this time, uh, youths, adults, youngsters alike, were still roaming, wandering around the streets. These were started by Molotov cocktails, it was believed. Yes, this jewelry store was looted first, then set on fire. 1,700 fires, 7,000 arrests. The culmination of decades of institutional racism accelerated the decline of Detroit's once stately downtown, its riverfront, and its neighborhoods. Detroit's poverty rate is double what it was in 1967. The city struggles with segregation, inadequate housing, and has the lowest school test scores and graduation rates in the nation. The rebellion marked the end of one version of Detroit, sent thousands of people, especially white people, to the suburbs. If you watched it in time-lapse, you would see hundreds of idyllic 1950s neighborhoods collapse into burned-out husks. All of a sudden, after that riot, things changed. White flight was enormous. It, it drained the city of, of financial resources, tax base. The blight on street after street. We've had 50 years. We've had 50 years. And, and this is the disappointment I feel in my heart. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. By the 1980s, Detroit had become a hot spot, but not for tourists, for what photographers call ruin porn. I can remember the gangs, the drug-related gangs, the um, Young Boys Incorporated. I mean, all... The '80s were really tough. I mean, I mean, you know, kids were getting, kids were getting, were getting their, their, their sneakers stolen, their gym shoes stolen, their gold chain stolen. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if Kwame caught the bus to school, but he would have to cast. He might have gotten picked up or dropped off, but he would have had to get on the, on, undoubtedly, either the Hamilton bus or the Woodward bus. Uh, you know, and probably, and, and in his case, for the first time in his life, you know going to school outside of his immediate neighborhood. He grows up in sort of the central uh, central west side and uh, then goes to high school at Cass, which is essentially downtown. What's sort of interesting about Detroit is, and a lot of us who've grown up in the city have this conversation and sort of have this sense. I mean, it's, um, it, it, so, you know, I talked about the geography of it and size, but it really is, you know, 50 or 60 or 80 sort of small communities. I mean, in the suburbs, they call them subdivisions. We don't really look at Detroit as having subdivisions. Uh, not in the same way the burbs are set up. But um, I say all that to say, there's, you know, every two or three blocks, or three or four blocks, you can find middle class, maybe even upper middle class streets, and then a quarter of a mile to the east or west, you can find a neighborhood that has suffer and, and, and is represented by abject poverty. So, you know, there were neighborhoods that probably still had second and third generation educators, teachers, um, doctors, or you know, people that ascended to management and government. Uh, and then you had people who um, were on, 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 on public assistance, um, all within the same sort of general neighborhood. And you can find that sometimes within uh, an elementary or middle or high school. You can find kids that come from families that have a very different um, uh, socioeconomic existence. And so what tends to tie people together is, you know, maybe the high school that you attend yeah. or the church that you attend. Kwame was very active in youth sports. He played football under the uh, Police Athletic League umbrella. Uh, and then that's a way where you can meet people from all throughout the city. Uh, you know, a kid that you play play football or basketball or baseball with might live on the other side of town, but you play ball together. So you grow up together. And then obviously for those who go on to college, uh, you know, that happens in a more general way. I know Kwame Kilpatrick well enough to know that I believe that he could um, he could strike up uh, a conversation um, and a friendship with almost anybody because he has the personality um, that is quite frankly magnetic. Um, I remember uh, interviewing in recent months um, um, Andrew Rochkowski, um, who was a Republican um, state house member and a colleague of Kwame Kilpatrick's when they served in the Michigan House. Now, we call him Rocky. 
Rocky is a conservative Republican, <laughs> and Kwame um, is 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 you know is a strong Democrat. Um, they were on opposite sides of the aisle, literally in Lansing, but they also uh, went to law school together, and at times studied for the bar. Um, it, it just points to the um, magnetic personality of, of Kwame. I think that he could get along with anybody. And, and probably, I think I would venture to say, to the extent that I know him, I don't think he'd look down necessarily on anybody with respect to their chosen profession, um, what they chose to do for a living. That's 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 not the Kwame Kilpatrick that I know, yeah. I, and I don't profess to know him very well. Um, but I've been around him enough to know that, and I know people that have grown up with him and have been close to him in his adult life. Um, so I don't know that he would have, uh, you know, a problem breaking bread with you know somebody who, uh, you know, was part of um, the nightlife scene. Kwame's neighborhood growing up was centered around a church, Shrine of the Black Madonna, a politically active congregation where his parents, both civil rights leaders, were powerful. Well, you know, back in the 70s and 80s when he was growing up, the neighborhood that you'll see uh, where the apartment building was is a solid neighborhood. In fact, it's still solid. Um, and so, you know, he, you know, probably caught the bus to Cass Technical High School a couple, you know, a few miles south of here, downtown. Um, had as much of a middle-class existence as, as I think a family that lived in Detroit could uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Oh, so this apartment building here is where Kwame uh, grew up. It is just, yeah, it's called the Abington now. Um, but it was it, it was previously owned by the Shrine of the Black Madonna. That's what it was. I mean, it's just it's interesting that he had such a close life. You know, the church mm -hmm. is right down the street. Yep. The house is right here. Yep. And the house he ended up with is a few. Not not away. too far away. Not, yeah. not 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 too far away. This is the central uh, central west part of the city where Kwame spent pretty much his entire life before um, uh, becoming uh, becoming a state rep and becoming uh, mayor. And the reason why I wanted you to see the Shrine of the Black Madonna Church, the Civil Rights Movement really sort of hits its uh, heyday in, in, in the 1960s. What's interesting about the church in connection to politics, it had a political arm called the Black Slate. And so Carolyn Kilpatrick runs for state rep and is supported by the political arm of this church. Um, uh, Bernard Kilpatrick becomes a Wayne County commissioner um, supported by the political uh, arm of this church, the Black Slate. And so Kwame would attend services here um, as a young child. Uh, and there were lots of other political leaders who came out of the church as well. But w there are other movements. Black power manifested itself in a lot of different ways. But in terms of um, homes of worship, the Shrine of the Black Madonna Church became one of the more preeminent uh, black power churches uh, in Detroit. Later, Kilpatrick's parents moved up to a large house, very close to where Aretha Franklin bought a place for her father. The residences here are mansions by most standards, three stories tall on boulevards with graceful front porches and expansive front lawns. At almost 6,000 square feet, Zillow says the Franklin house is worth about $400,000. Houses nearby are two hundred dollars to $300,000, which actually puts them at the top of Detroit real estate values. In California or New York, even a few miles away north of Eight Mile Road, they could cost millions. So when did Carolyn buy this house? I think Kwame would have been probably in high school by that time. Kwame would have spent time here um, in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, would you say this is one of the preeminent neighborhoods in Detroit in the 1990s? Um, oh, yeah, for certain. Yeah. For certain. Still, it's Detroit. What's the crime rate in neighborhoods like this? Uh, I haven't looked at recent data. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a challenged uh, general neighborhood. Now, Still, this, okay. street, this street is great, um, but you don't have to go too far one way or the other to find challenges. Um, this is C.L. Franklin. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
did she uh, stay so by the time C.O. Franklin bought that house she didn't really live in that house that's the house where he was shot um, oh, wow. and if you know that story he yeah. so he was shot in a burglary attempt um, on his home and he was in a coma for five years um, was in the hospital for a couple of years and then he um, I think they, well, they moved him back into the house and then the Franklin family decided to you know let him let him let him pass on because he wasn't coming out of the coma he had been in it for oh, um, I did not know that he was the, killed in a bird basically essentially killed in a bird yeah on the last leg of our journey, we head to the neighborhood where Kwame and Carlita Kilpatrick lived when Kwame was a young lawyer in his 20s. A cop had told us early on that he thought the party attributed to the Menudian had actually happened here, on Leslie Street. In the interim between Kwame's first election and when the family moved into the mansion. Is there any evidence of that? I invited myself inside to ask. I'll just take this for one minute. Thank you. I'm gonna do right back, you guys. Yeah, I want to check this house out for one second. How are you? I know this is weird. I'm with I'm with the news radio station WWJ, and we're doing a podcast about Kwame Kilpatrick. And did you know that this was his house? Yes. You I did know. Yeah, somebody told me. Did you? Are you a contractor? Or are you the owner? The owner. Oh, so how do you feel about? Can I see the house for one second? Is that okay? Oh, sure. Two men were standing outside the former Kilpatrick house, workman clothes, pulling lumber out of a utility van. They were in the driveway of the huge brick Tudor. It had boarded windows, a dumpster, all the signs of a major renovation. Did you just buy this or what? No, no, we uh, bought it right before the pandemic. Really? God, that beautiful tile. We bought it right before the pandemic. And, uh... You know, this beautiful house. I love this neighborhood. So you knew that you bought this from somebody who bought it from Kwame. Well, yes, we passed on down the line, and so on, so on. But uh, so we've been working on it for a while. Did it matter to you that the former mayor owned it? No. No. Not for the price I got. What did you think <laughs> when you heard like, oh, this is Kwame Kilpatrick's old it's house? Just, uh, pretty nice. And- it, it, we had a little joke between us that when we were working down the walls, we were looking for money. <laughs> <laughs> the new owner, Antoine Davis, he's an easygoing man wearing the layers of construction clothes it takes to work on a home in Detroit in the winter. He tells us he and his wife have four kids. She's from Detroit. He's from Virginia. He talks as we check out the expansive living room, arches leading from the big living room to what's obviously a kitchen gutted to the studs. Our footsteps echo on hardwood floors. They're being patched back together. The fireplace has been cleaned, the brick looks fresh. You can see the promise of what it'll become. Experts would talk to you about sturdy bones, real brick, mahogany, oak, poabic tile. You like this neighborhood? This is a nice neighborhood. Yeah, I actually like this. We found this house by mistake. Yeah. Yeah, we were looking at one house, they didn't call us back, and then we waited, waited a couple months, went by, and then this house popped up. Do the house prices in Detroit surprise you? When I started paying attention, yes. Yeah. I didn't realize. It's, Detroit has a lot of potential that I see, you know, and uh, it doesn't take much, you know. I didn't know houses were actually really going for 500 1000 2000 bucks, And they were houses that were still in good condition. Mm-hmm. You know, not the prices that went up, of course. But Do you want to say, can you say how much you paid for this? Uh, I'd rather not say. Okay, that's fine. I, I it was a surprisingly low, can I say that? Yeah. 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 For something that, I mean, in other neighborhoods is a, essentially half a mansion. Yes, because this is a, I didn't realize how, how, how big this house was. You know, it's about, what, 26, 2600 square feet, I believe. And, uh, you know, three floors plus a basement, it's, it's a lot of house. Yeah. It's, it's, I can tell it's going to be stunning. Yeah, it's, but that was always the running joke, though. When I got it, everybody's like, that's Kwame old house. You might find money in the walls. I'm like, started tearing out all the walls. But no money? <laughs> no money. No money. Oh, believe me, I wish. The house would have been done. <laughs> How long have you been working on it? Uh, well, couldn't. I save about a year now. Okay. About a year. Going a little over now. So we're a little behind. As we talked real estate, contractor Jimmy, a lifelong Detroiter, chimed in. And it's interesting to hear from regular people, hardworking people with blue-collar jobs, 
People outside of media or government, how they remember the man who took up so much space in their lives a decade ago. Well, you know, interestingly, the reason we were driving around here is because we're doing this podcast about Kwame mm -hmm. and part of the, of course, the Minutian Mansion Party. And some people say that the party actually happened here because he was between moving in to the Minutian and yeah, the party where the stripper was, mm. was Strawberry was allegedly okay, beaten and that, that whole scenario. So a couple of the cops have said that some other stories say the party happened here, which... Yeah, exactly 18 years ago. Do, do you remember that? Oh, to detail. Yeah, and what do you think about that? I think it should be left in the past. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what some people say. It should be. I mean, With the federal prison, on a charge that started out as a misdemeanor. He did. Okay. You have you lived in Detroit your whole life? All my or? life. Yeah. No, they said uh, some things people do, when you done made them go through the... Uh, trial period and uh, spend time away from their families, spending time as they say. Mm -hmm. So you think he went to jail for too long, for too little? I can't speak on that because I'm not the one who makes the timing. Um, there's really no time on when people should, how much time they should spend in jail for the crime to commit. But overall, once the price has been paid, it should be left to rest. Yeah. Um, Man the, can't move along as long as... The, one of the reasons we're doing this on the other side is that, you know, somebody is, was killed, a single mother, three mm -hmm. kids, and no one has ever been charged with... Well... So people still, you know, her family still wants to know who killed her. My thing is this. And it's, 44 uh, Magnum is what killed her. It doesn't matter. And who. only police carried those at that time. Only so. police. The gun was a 40 caliber, but close enough. Reporters aren't surprised that people remember only the broad strokes of the rumors. Pulitzer Prize winning reporter M.L. Elric from the Detroit Free Press reflects on that. And I think it's richly ironic because he's told everybody he uh, went to prison because he had a fare, which isn't true. He went to prison because he ran a criminal enterprise out of City Hall. Heading to the Manugian, which is our final stop. Ken and I talk about that. They don't remember anything else. I mean, obviously that was the more sensational aspect of all the criminal law proceedings that Kwame was in. I mean, they, re they remember that. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, um, the relationship was, with Christine is, yeah. you know, people remember that. They don't remember, uh, you know, Bobby Ferguson steering deals to, you know, particular people. And, yeah, but pay to play. Pay to play, yeah. That is, it's, it's not as sexy. Look, I mean, you know, again, that's why even, um, even when you pitch the topic to me, you know, and I kind of lived it like a lot yeah. of people did, but, you know, I, but you, you have to kind of remember every, you have to go back and kind of look at stuff again and, and research stuff and, um, cause you know, you want to be right on the record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. So that's why when you ask me the question about it, I mean, I think in some people's minds, there are aspects of this that is a distant memory because I think that maybe some people choose to forget it. They want to forget it, right? Um, um, but in other cases, so much happened. So many very uh, various things happened over, you know, five or six or seven years. It's tough to kind of recall everything, um, yeah, you know, sort of chapter like, and verse. It was like day-to-day -day hits. You're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. I mean, that's how we all sort of felt, at least as Detroiters, at least as people, even 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 those of us who were journalists, we still kind of live this stuff on our sleeve because uh, at least for my generation and Kwame's generation, we've all kind of grown up together. Um, we're, we're one or two degrees of separation. We, um, in the case of Kwame, I knew him personally. But even for people that didn't know Kwame personally, they know, you know, friends of his or, or family members of his. And so that those were, you know, those were a set of years. Um, and, you know, when I think back on them now, you, I, I can't believe all of this happened. Yes. It, it, it feels like it feels like a nightmare. And I say that as a city, a lifelong city resident, uh, a city booster, 
person that spends a lot of time writing about history. It, it just it is a it's a chapter, a very unfortunate chapter um, in in the in the in the city's history. And what and, and what really um, brings it home to me even more is it was an African American man. Uh, in my generation is somebody who had a lot of hopes and dreams had a lot of hopes and dreams the Menudian is as stately as the word mansion would imply it looks kind of like a white limestone version of the house from home alone the one where everybody wonders how the family could afford it in this case the mansion was donated to Detroit in 1966 by Alex Menudian it sits on a short street It's just off the downtown in a neighborhood with other mansions. Currently, Mayor Mike Duggan and his wife are the occupants. Duggan's the opposite of Kwame in many ways. Ill-fitting suits, plain speaking, drives himself everywhere. As we sat outside the Menudian, Duggan's wife trooped out. Strong winds whipped her hair. The difference between the Menudian under Kwame 20 years ago and today with Duggan can be spotted in the plain, small black Chevy she drives herself away in. But of course, this is where, you know, at one point, Kwame has a press conference to say that the party didn't happen. Remember, yep. he, he sits, he stands. never come, disrespect. He has the presser, yeah, he has the presser right on the front steps. Yeah, I would um, never disrespect my God. Yeah, yeah. Kwame did a lot of things wrong in office. He's admitted it himself many times, sometimes defiantly, sometimes humbly. It's not easy to get one over on people who grow up in a place like this. Still, a lot of people feel like Kwame used his charisma to get one over on him. Tia Graham hosts a daily podcast for the local NPR affiliate. It's about the lives of Detroiters. She has the city's pulse. Growing up in the city, it's truly made me street smart. You know, like I understand certain things. It's not easy to get one over on me because of growing up in the city, growing up around different people. You know, the term Detroit hustles harder. You learn a lot. And that term truly sticks with so many Detroiters. We truly hustle harder, and I learned exactly that. It's 50 50. It's kind of mixed, like, especially for the younger generation, millennials and myself. We don't care. Yeah. I would prefer him to just kind of go away quietly. You kind of did damage to the city. You definitely, I mean, changed the way that I grew up in the city of Detroit. Like if someone asked you on the outside, like say you went to Los Angeles, and someone said, hey, do you know that guy Kilpatrick? What would you say about him? I would just say, you know, he was a well-known mayor here in the city of Detroit who unfortunately failed to the bottom of the bottom due to mm-hmm. reckless and just a lack of judgment. I would just tell them, you know, I'm happy that he is no longer in prison for the amount of time that he was set to go to prison. But at the same time, we would love to see him just kind of go away. I would tell the people across the country, we would just want him to go away. When I uh, was an intern at Fox 2 News, I uh, went to the, the trial, one of the trials that he had. And it was fascinating to see and learn about some of the money that was lost um, during his uh, time as mayor, uh, especially with Bobby Ferguson and Christine Feedy. There were so many different things that were laid out in that case that I was actually really stunned and shocked, and I don't think a lot of people knew. So once that information came out from that case, and that's like, once again, this is the early 2010s, I think that really was the nail in the coffin. I think that once we found out everything that was going on with all the missing money and the demolitions and all the other stuff that was happening, I think that was just the that was it. That was the, the end of the line for Kwame Kilpatrick. The end of the line for Kilpatrick, in one way, but not really. If Kwame's proving anything, it's that F. Scott Fitzgerald was wrong. There can be second acts in American lives. And that's what made his downfall even more um, just fascinating and amazing to see a young guy go to these great heights uh, and within a few years, you know, you turn on the TV or you get a phone call and somebody tells you the mayor is in jail. 
<laughs> and yep. it and it, it 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 doesn't compute. I mean, you know, yep. it's it, it it it's it's oxymoronic if that's a word. Yep. It's, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it was it was all of that too. Yeah. But 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 again, you couldn't write you couldn't write a script um, of the last twelve to fifteen years and anybody believe it would actually have happened. In our next episode. Strawberry and the Governor's Race. In one such message sent May 19, 2003, Ruth Carter reported to Defendant Kilpatrick she had spoken to Attorney General Cox in the wake of news stories that he and the MSP would be conducting this investigation, and he asked who we'd rather be cleared by, him or the Wayne County Prosecutor Duggan. Who Killed Strawberry is a production of WWJ News Radio in Detroit. The podcast is written, hosted, and produced by me, Christy Strasser. It's also produced by Zat Clark. Special thanks to Bill Smee for copy editing and to Myron Kaplan for audio editing. Give us a rating and be sure to subscribe. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyone with information on the murder of Tamara Green should call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-SPEAK-UP. All tips are anonymous. All views, statements, and opinions made by people in this podcast are theirs alone. All individuals should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.